Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Diseased ventures and such boiled stuff as might well poison poison. Be revenged. Or she that boy you was no queen, and you recoil from your great stock. <laughs> revenged? How should I be revenged? If this be true, how should I be revenged? I dedicate myself to your sweet pleasure, more noble than that renegade from your bed, and will continue fast to your affection still close as sure let me my service tender on your lips hello and welcome to the plays the thing i am tim mcintosh and that was ethan hawk playing the role of yakimo and dakota johnson playing the role of imogen in william shakespeare's Cymbeline. Which, if you're listening to the show, I am kind of wondering what, h- how many of you have ever even heard of Cymbeline, much less are familiar with it. So we're doing something a little bit unique today. Um, I have a special guest who I'm going to introduce in a second, but I also want to say this is not the first of six podcasts, as is our habit on The Plays of the Thing. This is our first and only podcast on Cymbeline because we're going to start doing that for some of Shakespeare's more, oh, let's call it obscure works. And I think Cymbeline fits neatly in the category of more obscure works. Um, So be looking for a a few more of these single episode podcasts on lesser known Shakespeare plays. Okay. Um, I would like to introduce our special guest, Madeline Wheeler. Madeline, it was one of my favorite students at Eugene College in Oregon, where I used to teach, and I've been wanting to bring her on the show for a while. So Madeline is currently a student in the PhD program in classics at the University of Southern California. She has an MA in classics from Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia and a BA in liberal arts from Gutenberg. Her academic interests focus on intersections between ancient philosophy and poetry. 
Madeline, I'm so glad that you are part of the show. Welcome. Hello. I'm so honored to be on today. <laughs> um, so, Madeline, before we start, you and I have been kind of like putting together some questions about this play. Before we started investigating the play, can you tell me anything about your, did you have any acquaintance at all with sibling? No, I had none whatsoever. And I think that's why I was excited to read it and talk about it when, you know, we first initially started bouncing back and forth ideas. And you mentioned Cymbeline and it piqued my interest because I really didn't have a lot to attach to the play at all. I saw in Eugene, Madeline, a production at Lane Community College. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> and it was actually I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say two things that sound contradictory. It was an outstanding production. My friend Bill Hewlings directed it, and he's a really well-established actor in Eugene. And I wanted to go see it. And so I went to go see it, and I thought it was fabulous. It was spectacular, and um, it was very, very theatrical. Some of the acting was really good. And I walked away, and I said, I don't have the slightest clue what that play was about. <laughs> that's, that's, that sounds like a little bit of a contradiction. Like it was really spectacular. And it was really well done. And I haven't the foggiest idea what happened in the play, which Madeline, we've been talking off the air. This might be like the issue with yes. the play, right? It's, it's difficult, isn't it? I'm so interested that that was your reaction. <laughs> I think this actually speaks to one of our questions. And I wonder... I wonder if you remember what it was that was so, so compelling. Was it the way they showed the action? What, what was it? It was the way that they showed the action. Actors have this way of talking. And, and one of the things that we say is um, it was very theatrical, mm. which is, it, it's not a very descriptive way to describe what we're talking about. Because of course, you're going to a theater, you're seeing a theater play. Of course, it's theater. Yeah, I don't think I would have, I don't think I would know exactly what that meant. <laughs> right. I, it just means there was, there was lots to look at. I think Aristotle would describe it as, he would say, there was lots of spectacle. Hmm. And there was lots of spectacle to the play that I saw performed. Um, but I don't think the spectacle could quite mask the problems with the play. So, Madeline, let's do this. Let's just imagine that most of our audience has either very little familiarity or none familiarity at all. And let's just try our very best to kind of patch together a plot uh, from this play. Um, so I'll start, and why don't you just help me when I start leaving the rails or forgetting things that are really important. Our main character is Cymbeline, who is a king in Britain. He mm -hmm. is married. Uh, it's his second wife, and he's married to the queen. The queen has a couple of sons, make, meaning they are Cymbeline's stepsons, and she wants one of them to marry one of the chief characters, Imogen. She's our Imogen is going to be our the heroine of this play. The problem, though, is that Imogen has secretly already gotten married. She married a man named Posthumus. Yes. P-O-S-T-H-U-M-U-S, Posthumus. <laughs> when uh, Cymbeline finds out about this, this cannot be. She can't have married this low-born Posthumus. She needs to marry royalty. So he banishes Posthumus. Posthumus flees. He goes. And he meets up with um, 
a couple of Frenchmen and an Italian. We're going to focus on one of the Italians right now. Mm-hmm. His name is Giacomo. So those of you who are familiar with the um, Shakespeare canon, Giacomo sounds a little bit like Iago. And his character is, to me, very much like Iago. But Iago is like going to talk about um, how unfaithful the queen is. Giacomo is going to actually attempt to seduce Imogene on a bet with Posthumus. <laughs> the, the audio that we heard at the top of the show, Madeline, was from that seduction scene. Okay? Yes. yes. And it's creepy. It's a really creepy scene. Um, Giacomo fails, uh, but he returns, he, he fails and Imogen resists him. She casts him out and then he does it about face does, uh, Giacomo and he's like, Hey, I was actually just kind of like, it was kind of a test. I wasn't really out to seduce you and you know, your husband's, you know, great and he's faithful and everything's just going to work out great. But he goes home, does Giacomo. He goes home to Posthumus and he's like, you know what? I was successful. I have all the proofs. Here's a bracelet that she gave me. There's a birthmark under her left breast that I saw. I can like tell you everything. Posthumus is enraged. He is so angry. And he proposes that he is going, isn't he going to kill Imogen? Madeline, isn't that kind of like another major plot point? It here? is. It is. He gives instructions to his servant to do that. So we're already, so we're already kind of like thick in it. Meanwhile, the Romans are threatening to invade Britain. So the time that we're talking about is during the rule of Augustus Caesar. So if you're in, if we're in biblical history, this is the time that right around the time that Christ is born in Palestine. Um, so that's kind of the backdrop that, that Cymbeline is going to have to fight a war against the Romans. And that's kind of happening. Meanwhile, oh my goodness, Madeline, I'm, on, I'm already, to be honest, kind of losing track of the plot. <laughs> um, there's a faithful servant to Posthumus who kind of ends up protecting Imogen. Um, but meanwhile, one of the sons of Cymbeline's queen goes and attempts to kind of like find Imogen because she's run away and bring right. her back to the say, go ahead. And, it, and at this point, Imogen has decided to disguise herself. Is that? Yes. As a boy, as a boy uh, right. on, the, on the suggestion of posthumous servants. Yes. Yes. Already. I'm just going to interject here already, Madeline, at this point when I'm like, going over the play again there are so many different plot points there are that seem taken directly from other plays of shakespeare's yes does this occur the same thing occurred to you like the um woman fleeing dressing up as a boy happens in multiple plays yes and there are other plot points. Yes. And um, in being a, a boy shows up many of the other male characters in the play. Yes. Right. We can talk more about that, but right. yeah, it's very interesting. Um, some of the other plot points that seem like they are taken from other plays. I, I made a list of them. <laughs> okay. Um, at the end of the play, I'm just going to give it away. The queen is going to commit suicide. 
oh, just like Hamlet. Um, at one point in the play, the lovers believe the other lover is dead, and one of them is taking a sort of sleeping potion that is so powerful that it makes the lover appear as if dead, straight out of Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, it's a um, doctor is the one who like delivers these sleeping pills, also straight out of Romeo and Juliet. There's the attempted seduction and later revelation from the scheming cad straight out of Othello. <laughs> There's a loyal servant who refuses to um, enact his master's boneheaded orders straight out of Winter's Tale. Mm. There's the appearance of the royal deceased father to his royal son straight out of Hamlet. So it's all of these things. And it made me think, Madeline, that this play maybe we should think of it as Shakespeare's greatest hits album. Yeah. Right. I think that makes all kinds of sense. We could even add like Lady Macbeth perhaps, right? Um, Say more, say more. With, with uh, encouraging her husband to, you know, rebel uh, against. (laughs) She shows up, right. That's another one of the greatest hits. So I, before streaming services were a big deal, artists were sometimes musical artists were sometimes commissioned to like take all of their hits and to put them on one greatest hits album. <laughs> and there's a funny thing about those greatest hits albums, all the songs typically, you know, if it's a big artist, the songs are individually great. You know, they're all standalone great songs, but the album is typically really bad. Mm-hmm. Because there's no kind of coherence because you get this artist. It's like kind of like working in slight variations of the genre. Right. So like when you're, when you put them all together, the stew has just got too many ingredients. And this is what Cymbeline is to me. It's yeah. Shakespeare's greatest hits. All of these like kind of unique plot points are really interesting, but when they're put together, it becomes this, it becomes a grab bag. It becomes a stew. That's just, I don't know. It's not, to me, it's not super compelling. Yeah, and on a greatest hits album, you end up celebrating the artist, right? Not the album. Yeah, that's a great way of saying it. So that makes me wonder, you know, if our attention is being called to something broader and bigger about Shakespeare, maybe. Um, but maybe we can tease that out more later. <laughs> um, while we're there, Madeline, there's... so. This play was written around the same time as The Winter's Tale, um, The Tempest, and these plays are oftentimes, these are the last plays that Shakespeare wrote, and they're often categorized in books as romances. I want to ask you, when when we're thinking about how to read this play, what sort of genre are we reading here, mm-hmm. Madeline? What do well, we? Yeah, romances is a helpful categorization, just in the sense that there's an adventure that happens, mm. um, and we can follow the adventure, and <laughs> it's that, that can encompass a lot. Um, I I wonder if this play um, 
romance is a nice way to describe it, but I also wonder if it's kind of defying categorization and if the fact that you have this multitude of different plot points and which seem to refer to both comedies and tragedies at other points of Shakespeare's corpus, if there's something about that that is pushing against an easy genre categorization. Yeah. What do you think? I think so. I think it's really hard to define it because it has, just as you said, there are elements of comedy in it. Yes. There are elements of tragedy in it. And, and we need to, I think when we say a Shakespearean tragedy, I think most people hear that and they hear Macbeth, they hear Hamlet, they hear like bodies littered across the stage at the end of the play. Right. Mm-hmm. And when they hear comedies, I think, most people familiar with Shakespeare think, okay, a comedy is sometimes it's funny, but the most important thing is there's a marriage at the end or multiple marriages at the end. Right. And the ending is a happy one. Yes. And oftentimes, oftentimes there are too these recognition scenes at the end. Yes. Right. All right. Can you say more about what you mean by a recognition scene? Well, when we have all of these people who 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 are not what they seem, mm-hmm. and then resolutions happen at the end once the identities are revealed, uh, and the relationships are established, and confusions are cleared up, and then um, the marriage can happen. Yeah, right. In this play, it seems to me like you have maybe the defining feature of the tragedy is the hero or anti-hero, the protagonist, is deceased. I mean, I think of Lear, Coriolanus, Hamlet, mm-hmm. Othello. They're all dead. They all die. Um, and sometimes it's just, and some, it's, oftentimes there's some sort of a justice that's being served at the end of those. In this play, it has tragic elements in that the bad guys get killed, but... A lot of Britons get killed, too. <laughs> a lot of Britons get killed, too. Yeah. Um, but the end of the story is like a comedy. There's a reunion, and, there's, and it's happiness, and there's a sense of things are, ma- are not just made right because the evil king, Macbeth, is deposed and killed, um, but things are made right because the couple is rejoined. Imogen and Posthumus are brought together, um, symboling the king to some degree. His order, while threatened, is now restored to him. Um, the people who were faithful uh, are given honors and they're recognized. So it's a kind of, it's a tragedy and then a comedy. And I think that's as best... It's tragedy first. There are still bodies on the stage, but there's a joy and a making of things right at the conclusion. Yes, a joy and making of things right. That's still not, it's still fraught, right? It's still fraught. Yeah. Tell me how you see it being fraught. Well, just in the sense that um, the Britain, I mean, if you think on the political level of the story, the Britons haven't succeeded in avoiding paying tribute to the Romans. Yeah. So it's weird because the battle is won insofar as Cymbeline is saved, but it is it doesn't achieve its political purpose of 
keeping the Britons free from Roman rule. Yeah. Do you think that um, this is Shakespeare, a, a Brit, saying, hey, we did beat them in battle, lest you forget, but <laughs> not being able to like, kind of just erase the history from his audience's mind enough to not acknowledge. He ha- in other words, he had to acknowledge, yeah, but we still had to pay a lot of money. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I know we're going to talk more about this, but I think there's a lot there about this complicated relationship between the Romans and the Britons. So even for, to pose this conflict between them, um, so much of what Britain is at this point is Roman. So yeah. it's, hard, it's hard to do that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> um, let's talk about Yakimo for a second. I hate, to, maybe this is just, you know, bad criticism, but oftentimes it's the bad guys who are so interesting. Yes. I think Imogen is really interesting also. And I want to talk about Imogen in a second. Yeah. But I find Yakimo to be a really curious character. He reminds me um, of, oh my gosh, why did I just forget his name, Madeline? The bad guy in Othello. Iago. Iago, sorry. Their names are so similar that I just like kind of slipped they my are. mind. That's amazing. Iago betrays his lord, Othello, in convincing Othello that his wife is unfaithful. And she's not. She's perfectly faithful. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about Iago is that at the beginning of the play, we get one line. I think it's act one, scene one, maybe scene two. And he says, he turns to the audience and he says, I hate the more. He hates Othello. There's no explanation given. There's a little bit of a rumor that maybe he cuckolded Iago's wife or Iago was cuckolded. Um, but it's kind of Iago just begins his like bent toward destruction, toward destroying Othello without much of a motive being provided. We don't get much of a motive from Yakimo, do we? he kind of posthumous shows up after he's been thrown out of the kingdom after he, you know, he's, he's no longer allowed to see his wife. And soon there's this kind of chatter back and forth between posthumous and Yakimo and Yakimo is like, yeah, I could seduce your wife. It wouldn't be a problem. You think she's all faithful. She's not faithful. Um, can you think of like, what's really driving Yakimo here? Yeah, there's a couple things. I think overall, maybe, maybe there is still a parallel with Yago, but um, in terms of how much motive, but there is uh, at the beginning of scene four in act one, um, this might be the first time we meet um, the mutual friend of Yakimo and um, Posthumus is Filario. Mm-hmm. And so they're in Rome um, in Filario's house and Yakimo is describing, he's talking about what he's heard about Posthumus in Britain. And he yeah. says he is of a crescent note. So he's, he's on the rise, right? Mm-hmm. He's, he's got, um, he's got this really good reputation. He's got, everyone says good things about him. Uh, so you get the feeling that maybe Akimo is envious of his reputation and his success and 
and the fact that people admire him. Yeah. And furthermore, Giacomo is an Italian mm. and is taking up sort of the... Aren't they arguing about... Correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, but aren't they arguing about the Italian women? And then Posthumus argues oh, yeah. that wife is even more beautiful and virtuous. Yeah, this is what prompts him to, to brag on her, uh, brag on Imogen, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so Giacomo is arguing for the superiority of the Italian women. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and Posthumus counters with, no, the British princess, who is my wife, is, you know, she puts all the Italian women to shame. Yeah. Um, and so in a sense, I think, you know, throughout the rest of the play, you have a lot of tension between Italy and Rome and Britain. And so maybe Giacomo um, is this threat to posthumous as kind of an Italian talking to a Briton. <laughs> yeah. It occurs to me while we're talking, Madeline, how many of Shakespeare's plays that are set all or in part in Italy make use of the kind of... Um, licentiousness the the debauchery of the italian court so yes it shows up in the tempest and it also shows up i don't know if you know measure for measure hmm. but measure for measure the kind of backdrop is in this town um there's just like it's so licentious top to bottom and this new i can't remember his name i think of it in a second um the Duke leaves on a long trip and he puts his second in command in charge. And the second in command is going to clean up the town. He's going to go to the brothels and he's going to clean it all up. He's just as much part of the problem as the brothels are, you know? And so it's funny that this theme shows up so often in Shakespeare that when the Italians arrive, they're sure to be debauch or on the way to debauchery. Yes. And so we can see it maybe here in um, Giacomo bragging on the Italian women and himself setting himself to seduce Imogen. Exactly. Just like an Italian. Yes. He's the Italian. He's going to be the threat to this chaste British woman. Right. Right. Which is funny. You pointed this out when we were talking. It's so fun because there's this really vital aspect of early Roman history, which tells these stories of women who um, either preserve their chastity or their chastity is threatened and lost by, I'm thinking of uh, Tarquinius Superbus's son. Right. And so, yeah, that, that Shakespeare, it seems like, knows his Roman history well enough to kind of, to really play with this. Yes. And see, that is, that is a fantastic point, because I think that perfectly pulls out what I've been thinking about as we've been talking about this, which is, on the one hand, we have, like, Brit, the, this British identity contrasted with the Italian and Roman one, but at the same mm. time, the British one is very constituted by these Roman values, right? Mm, mm. Like so, so the virtuous matron here, which is who Imogene is, is an exact, like a perfect echo of these other kind of, of kind of moral. Um, yes. What's the word? Exemplars. Like, uh, yes, right? yes. 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 Um, from the early Roman history, and so yeah, yeah that yeah. that kind of notion of like 
back in the day, you know, back back before Rome got kind of over-civilized and degenerate and immoral, back when people lived austerely and simply and were moderate and right. um, were characterized by weirtooth and manliness and simplicity. Uh-huh. Um, and those ver- those values kind of get, um, those are what characterize Britain here as opposed to Rome and Italy. Right. Augustine, right. Rome and Italy. Excellent. Um, yeah, and I think there's so there's so a lot of the thematic complication comes from the the tension there. <laughs> the tension between these Britain two, and Italy. Yeah, these two cultures that are yeah. not just at war on the battlefield, but there's a kind of cultural conflict that we can see when Giacomo and posthumous are kind of arguing about the various virtues of their national women or of their and even someone like posthumous posthumous himself is virtually half roman right because yeah that's who his father his father gained notoriety in the roman army and and you know he has this residence in rome and his name itself is posthumous we're constantly reminded of his kind of latin origins and and the appearance of his father and mother and brothers and the go- the ghosts, you know, it's that's a very uh, they're they're calling on all the, like the Roman gods and yes, the appearance of Jupiter. So posthumous right, right. like posthumous kind of is the embodiment of like this simul- like the tension, but also the identity between the two. I guess <laughs> when you say he like the ten- do you think that he embodies or that he embraces? kind of the British, the British cultural identity more than he embodies or embraces the Roman cultural identity? Or do you see him as trying to be, is he trying to be a bridge character? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. He's brought up in the British court, right? Mm. So in a sense, he's almost like the inverse of the two British sons that get taken away from the British court and brought up in the wilderness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he has to take off when he fights for the Britons, he has to like, he says he'll take off his Italian weeds mm-hmm. and fight for the British. Um, mm-hmm. Because when he's banished from the court in the beginning, because of his relationship with Imogene, um, he sort of resumes his, picks up his Italian identity and then comes back and drops it for his British identity. And, and finally, at the end of the play, he just kind of acknowledges that he doesn't really have an identity with one side. You know, he just has his wife whom he has completely failed. Yeah. And all he wants is to give his life for her somehow. Um, yeah. Try to find some redemption in that. But I wonder, Tim, if we're getting ahead of ourselves, because I realize that we're talking about um, Belarius and the sons of the hidden sons of Cymbeline. And yeah. do you want to finish the, do you want to try to keep working <laughs> I just talk left. About, we want to talk about who, who these guys are. Yeah, can you tell us who these like hidden sons are and who's taking care of them? So, in the first act, in the first scene, we get this little rundown about how there are these two sons of Cymbeline that have been lost, and he has mm. this one daughter, Imogene. And then in um, in Act Three, we've been talking about Giacomo um, and this kind of. And Posthumus's sort of relocation to Italy. Um, and then in the same act, when Imogene is uh, going to Wales to try to meet Posthumus, mm. um, 
she uh, encounters these this man and his two sons, Belarius, and um, he has the sons have these two different sets of names, but um, <laughs> they it turns out that they are it's not complicated he, enough. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> it turns out that they are sons of Cymbeline who were stolen from Cymbeline when they were born um, in retribution for um, for the banishment of this old soldier, Belarius, who's been wrongfully accused. Um, and so Belarius has been um, sent away and and he has he has the two sons assembling with him. So uh, Imogen meets these two boys and she of course is disguised as a man, as a boy. And so she gets kind of adopted into their family, um, not knowing that they actually are her brothers. And she is at that point, hidden royalty. Right. They are hidden royalty. Right. Except that Valerius keeps telling us, like in these little asides, that (laughs) they're actually the sons of (laughs) Cymbeline. Right, 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 right. Um, So, Valerius, there's there's something that shows up in the play, and you pointed this out, that the question of kind of nature versus nurture comes, jumps at various times during this play, doesn't it? Because these sons... Sons of Cymbeline, they're royalty. They have royal blood coursing through their veins. Surely they're going to be, they're going to act different. And Valerius talks about it, doesn't it? He kind of gives us little insights that, oh, their minds are far, they're just like dwelling in the ether high above because they're, you know, they're royal born. Yes, exactly. So in Act 4, in the first scene, Valerius is kind of admiring um, the kind of natural good qualities of these two boys. Mm -hmm. So he says, oh, noble strain, oh, worthiness of nature, breed of greatness. And then, uh, and he admires Imogene. When he meets Imogene, disguised as the boy, he thinks that she, he observes that she had had good ancestors because Mm -hmm. of how noble she looks. And then I think it's in the same scene here. Valerius gets very eloquent. <laughs> he's describing the two boys. What did he say? Uh, he addresses, I don't know which goddess he's talking to, um, but he says, Oh, thou goddess, thou divine nature, how thyself thou blazonest in these two princely boys. And then he compares them to, to wind blowing violets and then, <laughs> and then, and then a, a pine on the mountaintops. <laughs> and, and, you know, he, he says an invisible instinct. It's a wonder that an invisible instinct should frame them to royalty unlearned, honor untaught, civility not seen from other, valor that wildly grows in them, but yields a crop as if it had been sowed. So <laughs> that's so good. It's so good. Yeah. So, so he insists that they have all of these really good qualities naturally because of their uh-huh. birth but also he keeps stressing um how he has given them this kind of austere moral upbringing and again this goes back to the contrast with both the british the court in britain and the italian society in rome yeah yeah they're um they're out in the wilds they're referred to as like rustic mountaineers mm-hmm. um they're safe from like the the treacheries and the intrigues and like all these kinds of the, all the moral compromises that happen in like these more like civilized contexts. And so I was a little confused by this because 
um, it seems like he's saying two different things. Um, and he's asserting both that, yeah, their quali- their good qualities come from their nature, but also from their upbringing. And so uh-huh. it's, <laughs> it's just, it's very striking how it's their distance on the one hand from civilization that he credits while also pointing to their obvious, like noble ancestry. Yeah. <laughs> I, sometimes when Shakespeare confuses me i i remember that he's writing to the people that are standing around the stage that have paid a buck to get in Mm. and he's also talking to the people that are in the shadowed kind Ah. of luxury boxes up above Hmm. and he knows and this sounds this is going to sound cynical but i i really think it's true he was a playwright first and foremost, and a playwright must sell tickets. And I think that he has this ability. It's part of why he's just, he's the great humanist and that he has the ability to speak in both voices in both tongues. He can speak to Mm. the luxury boxes. Hey, you do have Royal blood. We know it. We know you've got Royal blood, your sons and daughters. If they were like raised by shepherds, we would be able to recognize that that they are made of something different. But at the same time, he speaks to the crowds and he says, listen, we know that you've got to work harder than those blue bloods up there. We know that you've got more kind of common sense and um, this kind of like earthy dignity to you than they have. We know that about you. That's one of the, we're so glad that you're not like those people in the upper boxes up there. I mean, and I think any attempt to sort of reconcile those two, those two, I don't know, audiences into a seamless philosophy for me and my life with Shakespeare has proved to be a fruitless endeavor. It, you know what I mean? Like I, I just, I remember one day I just thought, I'm just going to embrace the fact that he equivocates because Hmm. he equivocates. And I think it's, you could see it as philosophically kind of inconsistent, or you could see it as he is this great humanist who kind of has the ability to recognize the, the real virtues of these two very distinct classes, or you can look at it a little bit cynically, which sometimes I do is he's got to put butts in seats and he's going <laughs> to look at both sides and like sing of their greatest virtues. Uh, so they'll keep coming back. And I think, it, I think there's something to that. Yeah, for sure. That's very helpful. <laughs> um, I, let's talk about Imogen. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask you what you think about her character. I want to share with you a little theory that I have. I actually got this from a book oh, good. Uh, called The Greatest Actors in the World. And it's, it was about Shakespeare, who they think were Shakespeare's actors. Oh. So it talks a lot about Richard Burbage and Kent, one of the clowns that was part of the troupe. The author of the book has a theory that some of Shakespeare's greatest female characters were written during his like kind of like a middle tragic period when his, like some of his really great female characters come to the fore, Lady Macbeth, most notably, maybe Lady Anne from Richard the third. And the theory of the book is 
Shakespeare had a young man, because of course the men would be playing the female parts. He had a young man who was pre-adolescent, whose voice had not yet broken. And he was whoever he was. And the author, you know, makes a guess about who he thinks this person was. This young person was a supremely gifted actor. And so Shakespeare recognized how gifted the actor was. And so he wrote these really dynamic female parts for this young man to play. Then the boy's voice presumably broke. So he joined the kind of like male cast actors playing male parts. And Shakespeare for a while doesn't write a whole lot of like really great female characters. But, and I did not read this in the book. This is my own kind of private theory. At the end of his life, Shakespeare starts writing these really great female characters again. And I'm going to put Imogen in there. I'm going to put Hermione from The Winter's Tale. Hermione's awesome. She's unbelievable. She's so great. And she like, she steals the show with her like act three monologue. Um, when she's defending herself to the king, she kind of gets the last word of the king and she's put to death or she goes into hiding, whichever it is. Um, and the audience is like, man, that she, like, she's the hero of this play. Hmm. And we've also got in uh, around this time, Cleopatra from Antony and Cleopatra. Hmm. And we have Miranda from The Tempest. So I just wonder if Shakespeare's troupe at this time had a really superb young male, prepubescent, whose voice had not broken, who was able to kind of take on these different characters. And they I think- They found another actor. <laughs> they found another actor. They're doing it all the time, right? They're like kind of like coming and going and, and they've always got to kind of like recruit new actors to be part of this troupe. Yeah. So they got a new actor. That's my, that's my theory. But let's talk about Imogen. Do you, do you like Imogen? Do you think she belongs among the great Shakespearean female characters? I do like her. Um, She shows so much loyalty and decisiveness and she's just, she's a great character. I was confused when Mm. she immediately thought, that Clotten was posthumous when she saw his body. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah. So, so we should give the so background she, on that. Yes. Like, <laughs> Clotten, by the way, audience, Clotten gets decapitated. Clotten, one of the sons of the queen and the stepson of Cymbeline is the primary suitor or is the, is the person that the throne wants Imogen to marry. But unfortunately for them, she's already married posthumous. So Clotten, who's this kind of, he's just sort of adult. Um, he shows up in pursuit of posthumous and are the two royal sons discover him. And one thing leads to another. And he not only gets, Clotten not only gets killed, Madeline, he gets decapitated. And yeah. then lifeless body is mistaken yeah. by Imogen for posthumous. Right. And so fair enough. I mean, she, she has woken up from her apparent death. She's not actually dead, but she wakes up and, you know, she's undergone a tremendous amount of trauma. She's been buried next to Claudius or Clotten. Right. Clotten. Yep. And, um, which is also really interesting because they have like this dual funeral for the two of them. Right. 
and they get buried right next to each other. And so she wakes up and she sees that, yeah, the headless corpse right next to her. Um, <laughs> and, and you're, you're absolutely right, Tim. I think she can be excused a lot for, you know, yes. not being very sharp in that moment. Yes, for but, sure. So she says, she says that, so she sees Posthumus's clothes on him. Mm. And but then she says, I know the shape of his leg. This is in scene two of scene mm-hmm. two of act four. I know the shape of his leg. This is his hand, his foot mercurial, his martial thigh, the bronze of Hercules. But of course she doesn't see his face. <laughs> yes. Right. Because it's um, like in so, another pit maybe. Yeah. So, so she doesn't recognize the body that she thinks is her husband. Um, mm. And so I, I was confused by that. Um, at the end, uh, in the final scene, when the recognitions are taking place, the identities are being established. Um, she's still disguised as a boy. She runs up to posthumous and she gets, he strikes her in the face because he doesn't recognize her right away. And she kind of, she kind of puts hands on him. Yes. I think the stage directions imply that she puts hands on him. Yeah. And posthumous kind of just like reacts yeah. really rashly. And yeah. Punches her. <laughs> punches her in the face. Yeah. yeah. Which is such a jarring moment, you know? Yeah, it's so weird. It's, it's so, so weird. weird. And so, so I bring that up because it's important when thinking about her character because she gets, um, she gets reunited with her husband. And so in the one sense, it's a happy ending for her, but in the same sense, she is basically silenced. Um, she, mm. Like she's been betrayed. Her husband has tried to have her killed. Right. Um, after, after she was like, a, there was an attempted seduction. Yes. Which yeah. her husband put a bet. Right? Yes. Her right. Right. He puts a bet on her fidelity. He loses. So he thinks immediately is convinced by this villain, you know, yes. that, that tries to seduce her to win the bet. Um, and then gives his servant orders to have her killed. Um, all of this has gone down. And then uh-huh. when she sees him again, she gets punched in the face. And so in the final scene, you don't see a lot of, uh, she just kind of takes it all in stride. <laughs> right. And, that's confusing, I think. And yeah, how that how that sit with you? That's hard for a contemporary reader to to read, I think. Because um, and then also not only that, but also there's an economic disadvantage that the story leaves her with because her two brothers have been found, and Cymbeline, I think, is the one who makes the point to her. You know, you have lost a kingdom, and she responds, "I've gained two worlds." Right. So the point is mm. better to have a family. Um, than a kingdom, which is great. Yes. And, and that's, um, but, but it is, it seems notable, you know, the king brings it up. And so there are a lot of losses for her and it doesn't necessarily seem like a neat reckoning at the end. Yes. Um, yes. So I think that, that is, that can be challenging, I think, as a contemporary reader to make sense of. What do you think, Tim? I, I agree. And I mean, I give you an example of how hard it is for contemporary audiences to get with this. Let me, let me first say what I, I think kind of like a historical difference between Shakespeare's time and our time that might make it more palatable for Shakespeare's audiences. I think that in many plays, Shakespeare, when Shakespeare put someone who has been depositioned, especially someone who's been depositioned from a throne or from a high place in society, 
when they are repositioned, there is a certain, there's like a justice that is there that does not need to be communicated to Elizabethan audiences. And I think Elizabethan audiences would say, yeah, Imogen kind of had a hard, I mean, she, she had a hard time of it, but she got back into the position that she justly deserved. And that means so much. It, it, it means more than just, um, she's going to walk down the street with a tiara on her head and be recognized by everybody as the queen or the princess. It means much more than that. It means finances. It means um, luxury. It means security. It means like recognition, all those sorts of things. Now, I don't think the United States is a classless society, but compared to Elizabethan England or compared to, you know, ancient Rome or ancient Britain, we're as close to a, a, class for classless society as you know it gets i think they would look at our society and they'd just be like what like you guys just look like you're completely flat there's no highborn or lowborn what is this so i think maybe as americans or north americans there's something really jarring about the injustice of imogen situation and let me give you an example about a, a i saw the Ashland Shakespeare Festival produce much ado about nothing. And there's a similar scene or a similar kind of resolution in much ado about nothing. That's really jarring to a contemporary audience. And I'll try to describe it. So Beatrice and Benedict are the main two characters. One of Beatrice's good friends is a woman named hero, Mm -hmm. beautiful young woman who has fallen in love with Claudio, but Don John a friend of Claudio slanders her, slanders her and accuses her of having an affair and Claudio buys it. He believes it. Okay. Then Claudio discovers actually Don John made it all up. Claudio goes on his knees back to hero. Please forgive me. I'm so sorry. Hero says, yes, and they're married again at the end. And I think, and so, and so Hero is restored to her position, right? And I think, I, I, I'm being a little bit speculative here, but I think Elizabeth and audiences would be like, yeah, she had a hard time of it. She got slandered unfairly. Um, and Claudio embarrasses her at their wedding, but she gets put back right into her position by the end of the play. It's okay. But Ashland, when they produced the play, they did something I thought was just brilliant. Hmm. There's a marriage scene at the end. Hero and Claudio get together. They have the marriage. But at the end of the play, Beatrice and Benedict are standing center stage because they are married at the same time. They're holding hands. They're in love. The marriage has taken place. It is happily ever after for sure. But like we're like, what's going to happen with Hero and Claudio? Because it went bad in the middle. Yes. They put... Claudio and Hero on the exact opposite sides of the stage. Hero's got her arms crossed over her chest. Her back is to Claudia. And the look that she's giving is, this is doomed. Uh, yeah. And I thought it was so good because you have the resolution of the marriage. It's a comedy. You have to have the marriage and have the marriage be intact. So you get that with Benedict and Beatrice, center. But in the wings, you have this kind of irreconcilable error 
that's happened earlier in the play remained irreconcilable despite the fact that like positionally Hero and Claudio were married. Hmm. And I, I think, I wonder if there could have been a better ending, like if maybe a more contemporary ending mm. could have been done. Do you see where I'm leading us, Madeline? Maybe, just maybe there's a better ending out there, dare I say it, than William Shakespeare's ending to this play. Is it possible? Oh, the blasphemy. <laughs> I know, it is blasphemy. Okay, okay, I just want to set it up a little bit and I'm going to put the ball on the tee and so you can hit it. Madeline and I have been talking about that a pretty famous writer wrote an alternative ending to this play. And Madeline and I wonder if it might actually be a better ending than the one that Shakespeare wrote. We get, it's shocking. We get that we're messing with like, you know, arguably the greatest poet. I mean, in the English language, probably that's not much of a dispute, but you know, like one of the great poets in world history Maybe somebody did it better than him. <laughs> I want to say something, a little bit of something about this person. He did not like Shakespeare. He was not a contemporary. He lived in the 20th century. Uh, those of you who are listening, you might want to take a guess. He was also British. Did not like Shakespeare. Thought Shakespeare was tremendously overrated. Hmm. One of his big complaints against Shakespeare is that Shakespeare is not enough of a social poet. And this guy was definitely a social poet or a social, he's best known as a playwright. Okay. One thing before we talk about who this person is, I just got to say, Madeline, you know who, what, uh, what other really famous writer, uh, 19th century really hated Shakespeare? Oh, who? Tolstoy hated him. Really? Did you know that? No, I did not know that. He hated Shakespeare. Really? And the guy that we're talking about hated Shakespeare. And I'm utterly convinced of this. The reason that both Tolstoy and this guy that we're not yet naming hated Shakespeare is I think that they were so good. They were such accomplished writers that they really felt a rivalry with Shakespeare. And I think that it, my total speculation, I think in their heart of hearts, they were like, damn it, he's better than me. <laughs> I don't like him. I, that's really, I really do think that. I really do think that. Tolstoy, I think he was like, there's even a moment, I can't remember where it is, but he lists himself as Tolstoy, who had no lack for ego. <laughs> All of the authors of the, the pantheon that he considered great, and he puts his name in there, just kind of like bracketed by commas, you know, just like, and Shakespeare is one of them. Oh man. So it's just okay. envy. It's just artistic envy. I, that, there's probably more to it than that. Also I, for, for Tolstoy, Shakespeare lacked um, a moral, a consistent moral compass. Right, 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 right. You know, that's his big complaint. Cause that's what, that's what for Tolstoy, yes. great art is motivating us toward moral goodness, right. maybe beauty also, but moral goodness is the chief, um, uh, of the three transcendentals, it's kind of number one. Beauty and truth are like 2A and 2B, but goodness is, you know, one. Right. 
Okay, let's Whereas talk about Shakespeare enthusiasts might appreciate some of the <laughs> some of we, the complexity that Shakespeare offers. Yes. And sense. we appreciate we embrace all three of the transcendentals at once. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No okay, transcendental Madeline. discrimination. Um, no transcendental discrimination, exactly right. Uh, let's talk about who this other author is who had uh, who not only did not like Shakespeare, but wrote an alternative ending. Who is, yeah. who is this person? Let's talk about him. Who is he? <laughs> Tell me. Like, let's reveal his name. Yes. He is George Bernard Shaw. And he rewrote Act 5 of Cymbeline to provide a more satisfactory ending, to make it less convoluted, and uh -huh. to give Imogene a more satisfying resolution. Okay, Although, I want to ask you, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. I want no, to ask you whether or not you think that his Act 5 is better and if you found his treatment of Imogene to be more satisfying. But first, I'm just going to talk a little bit about George Bernard Shaw very briefly. Yes, no. He's, George Bernard Shaw is a brilliant playwright. Um, best known maybe for Master and Man which is part of the reason it's, it's not probably his best play, but it's maybe his best known play other than, Oh, what is the one that my fair lady is based after Madeline? Oh, oh what is it? It's named after the, um, that famous Greek sculpture. The sculpture comes Pygmalion. alive. Pygmalion. Pygmalion is the name of yeah. his play. Um, and he is a, an early, adopter socialist in Great Britain. And he is all about like art has social effects, social, it brings about social reform. And his plays really tend in that direction. And he's, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. And I think you know this. Do you know who his chief rival was in kind of like British letters at the time? Oh, man. I don't think I do, Tim. Who is it? They were also really, really good friends, apparently. G.K. Chesterton. Oh, okay. <laughs> they were, like, great friends and, like, like always tusk to tusk in newspapers, just on like, completely opposite sides of things. Yeah. I've thought of actually about trying to write a play about the two of them because oh. their, their exchange, like, on the editorial pages in British papers is, like, the stuff of majesty. It's so great. You got to do by the it, way, Tim. I, I really, I thought so much about it. I just have to point this out. Chesterton is not arguing the capitalist point as opposed to socialists. Mm. Chesterton's pretty critical of capitalism. I just, I just had to get that in there. <laughs> do, you think that, do you think that George Bernard Shaw's rendering of Act 5 is better than Shakespeare? And secondly, do you like his treatment of imaging better? Oh my goodness, this is hard. Um, what he does with the ending is he situates the revelations in the action. And so that makes them more organic and it's less of a, okay, everyone stand up and say who you are now. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> and make sure you identify yourself by the mole that's somewhere on your body. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's like, Guiderius is identified by his mole and it's like, oh my goodness, is this happening yeah. again for the second right. time in this play? Um, although I will say, I will say that in defense of the mole, um, recognition tokens are kind of like 
are you have to have a token of your noble birth in a recognition. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So like like in and in, in like the new comedy genre in in like um an ancient letter a comedy, you know, then you might have um if there's a big reveal at the end and the two people who are in love with each other um and want to get married and it's uh their identities are finally disclosed and you realize that they're both of noble birth so they can get married there are um there are tokens that typically accompany them that um were discovered with them when they were babies and that can interesting testify, they can testify to their noble ancestry and, yeah and that maybe the mole is like that maybe it's not but there's you know it's some kind of like physical identifying marker that you know tells us that that's who Guidarius is and apparently moles run in the family because Imogene has a mole. Apparently so. <laughs> you know, th- this is one of those things, Madeline, I'm, I want you to, I want you to like, I don't mean to disrupt you, but I think like living in a media age like ours, we just assume like everybody knows who the U.S. president is and, and what the U.S. president looks like. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows it. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the vast swaths of human history no one knows what their leader looks like they never see it maybe they'll see a famous painting a hundred years later that's a great but point like identifying markers yeah at this time like in the majority of human history are crucial crucial to like preserving royalty and bloodlines etc cetera, et cetera. Right. right so interesting so George Bernard Shaw is not forcing, he's like embedding right, the solutions right. within the action of the play. Right, because um, the scene opens with Giacomo and, and Posthumus. They, they're on, they encounter each other on the battlefield after the battle's been concluded. And, and then they face off, get in a fight. That's broken up by Cymbeline and the captured Romans. And so it's as their conflict, as they get separated... That the identities get established, and Yakima fesses up to his um, his failed attempt at the seduction. Yeah, and then um, the two lost sons of Cymbeline are revealed, and the death of Clotin is revealed, and um, And so it's embedded in the story as opposed to being like, okay, everyone say who you are at the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, and give and give two plot points each. Give your name, your favorite color, and two <laughs> plot points each. And your favorite flavor of ice cream. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> right. So um, so there's that. Um, yeah. With respect to Imogene, Shaw gives her a voice and he lets her express her frustration, you know, in response both to how to the treatment she's had from Posthumus earlier in, in the story, and then, you know, she gets hit by him here too. Mm. Mm. Um, she rushes over to hug him and he punches her in the nose. Uh-huh. He, doesn't rec- he doesn't recognize her initially. Um, and at this point, in, um, Posthumus still thinks that, you know, Yakimo has to, to reveal the truth of the story and explain to Posthumus that she wasn't unfaithful. And so they kind of have this back and forth and they, uh, there's a little bit more explanation and justification for the misunderstandings mm. and Imogene can express her frustration um, and then have posthumous kind of give an account for himself a little bit, mm. but also like be contrite and say, I'm sorry. Um, yes. And she has some lines that are really, really poignant. Um, I'm trying to find them. What did she say? 
at one point she just comes out and says, I'm a woman, this man, my husband, he would have slain me. <laughs> and Posthumus says, do not harp on that. <laughs> <laughs> and then Cymbeline says, uh, he's like, oh, you guys are married. Stop worrying about it. <laughs> mm, mm. Uh, and Brenna, and Shaw almost, and, and then Shaw has Cymbeline say, are there more plots to unravel? Each one here, it seems, is someone else. So Shaw, I feel like Shaw kind of expresses his frustration with the, with the like excessive complexity of the plot through Cymbeline, yes. you know? Yes, I read um, that line the exact yeah. same way. Like but he's kind of winking. Yeah, yeah. And so then Cymbeline asks Imogene if she has no shame, and she says, none. And he says, how, none? And she says, all is lost. Shame husband, happiness, and faith in man. He, meaning her husband, is not mm. even sorry. Mm. And then he says, I'm too happy. Posthumus says, I'm too happy to be sorry. Uh, and Yakimo kind of butts in to explain more. And Imogene says, oh, do not make me laugh. Laughter dissolves too many just resentments, pardons too many sins. Mm. Yakima kind of goes back and forth with her a little bit more. And she says, I will not laugh. I must go home and make the best of it as other women must. And that's wow. Her, those are her final lines. Wow. So, yeah. There's obviously a lot of, of, of social <laughs> consciousness happening there. Yes. Yes. Where yes. Shaw wants to gesture to how unfair this is to her, but you know what, Tim, you're describing that Ashland production. And I wondered like, um, Shaw makes explicit in the in the lines here, but I wonder if you could communicate as much with how you interpret and perform Shakespeare's lines. What do you think? Is it a matter of performance? And um... I, it's a great question. I think you can take some of the edge off, or you can cut the play. I mean, if this play, Cymbeline, if it was performed in total, it's probably three and a half or four hours and no one performs three and a half or four hours. So you could, you could cut the text, which is not really addressing your question. You know, you could cut the text in such a way that um, takes a lot more of the edge off. But I think if you performed the full text of the last scene, I only think like the best actress could only do so much with that text. Oh yeah. Sometimes mitigate. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, yeah, I think the damage is done. I think the damage is in the text. I don't think there's like, I don't know how much you can escape it. It Imogen is kind of restored positionally, mm -hmm. but I, I, I think I hear a complaint from you about um, her treatment. And I think that I agree with your complaint. Well, so here's the thing. The thing that Shaw's ending does is it really layers the dissatisfaction of the posthumous and Imogene reconciliation reunion with the Rome and Britain relationship. That is really, and that's a great point. Because it's not an easy resolution for um, on the political level of this story. And yeah. I think, like, to me, those are the two strongest, like, streams running together in the story is yeah. the Eugene storyline and then 
or maybe that's just because those are what jumped out at me, but there's the imaging storyline and then there's like the Roman Britain and those are running alongside each other. And those are the two things that the last few lines resolve. And Shaw quotes the same, Charlotte Cymbeline have the same exact words, the same last one, two, three, four, five. I think it's 10 lines. He just quotes it directly from Shakespeare's act five. And it's this speech about peace. It's kind of this, articulation of the Pax Romana, you know, we have this Roman peace that um, reconciles the conflicts and creates order and, um, yeah, reconciles fight, you know, all, all these, even these furthest corners of the empire. Um, and it's this praise of the gods and this praise of the Roman rule. Mm. But, you know, it also reminds us that the Britons are paying tribute to the Romans and Cymbeline has, you know, retained his rule of Britain, but he has failed to um, free them, free Britain from the Romans. Yeah. And so there's an uneasy reconciliation between the Romans and Britain. And I wonder if that is echoing this uneasy reconciliation between Posthumus and Imogene and Shaw brings that out really nicely. Yeah. That is a that is a really great point. It, it makes me think this is a, a little bit of a tangent to the very end of the Aeneid. Um mm. so listeners if you've not read the Virgil's Aeneid, it's kind of um Homer the Iliad and the Odyssey kind of collected together and told in a, in a Roman fashion. The great hero is Aeneas. He is the father of the Roman people. His children will be Romulus and Remus, not his direct children, but a couple of generations past Romulus and Remus. Um, he is the one that gathers the Romans uh, together to sail onto um, the Roman boot. And there establishes the first encampment that will later end up being Rome. So the conclusion of the Aeneid, Madeline, is Aeneas defeating his final great enemy, Turnus. I can't remember what tribe Turnus is from. Maybe you can help me, <laughs> Madeline. Yeah. Um, but Turnus is this great warrior, a great, violent, strong man. And when Aeneas defeats him, there's something, and I think Virgil is very deliberate about this. Virgil has Aeneas, in essence, violate his, his orders as given to him by his deceased father. He turns his... Turnus kind of repents and lays down his arms... And Aeneas, if he would have followed his father's command, would have accepted the peace, but instead he doesn't, and he kills Turnus, and it's this bloody ending to a very bloody book. Right. But there's something, I think, about the uneasiness of Roman rule that was known even to the Roman, like, the, like more sophisticated Roman poets at the time, and they would both celebrate Rome on the one hand, and on the other hand say... But boy, we are, everything that we're doing, we're not doing through friendship. We're doing through an iron fist of rule and threats of brutality and, and direct brutality. Yeah. So I, I just wonder if 
Shakespeare was a, as far as what I can see, a very sophisticated historian. Mm-hmm. And I think that he knows that the kind of tangle between Britain and Rome at this period of history, and even in his day, was a really complicated story. And I can absolutely see the possibility that he's kind of mirroring um, the uneasy truce at the end of Cymbeline is the best that we can do, given, yeah. the, given the history. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many Aeneid allusions throughout the play, don't you think? There are. There <laughs> really are. I, I want to say one more thing along those lines. We have an appearance in Act 5 of a Roman god, of the Roman god, Jupiter. <laughs> he shows up in Act 5. Sorry, like we got a little bit away from, like we just praised Shakespeare as he's worthy of being praised. And then we just kind of like, I, I think we just need to end on this, Madeline. He like drops Jupiter onto a stage. This is not Midsummer Night's Dream where you've got like fairies and like spirits all over the stage. Yes. We haven't seen anything like this. What, are you, what did you make of yeah. Jupiter? Yeah. So in, um, let me see here. Yeah. So it's act five. It's scene four. Um, and Posthumus is in prison. He's thinking about Imogene um, and how he basically has no side to belong to at this point. And he's, he sees these apparitions of his father mm. and his mother and his brothers. And they all make these appeals to Jupiter, to the justice mm. of Jupiter. And, and, and say that Jupiter has been unfair to Posthumus. And Jupiter comes down from the sky. and. Mm-hmm rebukes them for challenging him, but also says, well, okay, <laughs> I'll give Posthumus a good fortune and kind of proceeds to give this prophecy about, about the, the fate, about a fate for Posthumus and a fate for Britain. It's, it's, it's the, um, this Roman notion of fatum or the judgment the, of Jupiter. And huh. Huh. Uh, and Posthumus wakes up and there's this tablet that Jupiter has left for him that has this cryptic prophecy on it. And the prophecy says, basically, there will be fortune and happiness for Posthumus and Britain after both of them get reunited to their sources, right? So Britain being kind of reconciled with Rome and Posthumus being, um, uh, you know, married and and uh, and symboling, you know, basically married to Imogene and uh, giving providing progeny for symboling. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. So there's yeah there's that image of a cedar and the branches that have been cut off the two mm. lost sons mm. and then the two lost sons get reunited the branches go back onto the tree and there's that really funny little pun about, <laughs> about the, the mollus air and the mulier um, and how Astemis and Imogene will be married and happy. And it's, it's, it's very strange, um, but it's, uh, it's. Does it work thematically? Like the staging of it drives me crazy. But thematically, I'm like, yeah, this like fits. It works. So, Madeline, which which Act Five do you do you like better? Do you like Shakespeare's better? I, I'm gonna no. I'm gonna like 
up the question. Which one is better? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) George Bernard Shaw's or William Shakespeare's Act 5 of Cymbeline? Which one? Um, Oh, Tim, I, for the heck of it, I'm going to go out on a limb and I know it's heretical, but I'm going to say that I, that Shaw. Okay. (laughs) I love it. I love it. That's what you're getting paid for, Madeline, to make bold pronouncements. What, and tell me why, why do you like it? Why do you, no, not why do you like it better? Why is it better? I think it organically integrates the explanations and the revelations. And I think that it, um, that it expresses Imogene's character better. Okay. <laughs> I am going to agree with you, but I'm going to kind of, I think cavil is the word, or maybe equivocate a little bit. No one can match just the prose, the prose of Shakespeare's, you know, sure, like as, sure, sure, as, sure. as good as um, Shaw is. I mean, his prose is wonderful. It's wonderful. But it it lacks the sort of felicity, I think, that, you know, yeah. Shakespeare's just, he's... Well, you can almost feel his frustration with it. Like, he's writing the act and he's like, take that, Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, there's a little bit of kind of like... Um, blunt force verbal enactment maybe yes. <laughs> you know, to kind of juxtapose Shakespeare's how florid Shakespeare is. I can yeah. see that. Yeah. Sure. Shaw yeah. is like, I am tired. It has been a long time pushing through this play. I am ready yeah. for the play to be over. <laughs> right. Right. So I'm going to cut the page length of act five by a third. I mean, no, maybe more than that. Like I bet the total like page count is probably, I don't know. I, I bet Shakespeare's on, you know, eight and a half by 11 is probably, I don't know, 15 pages. I, Shaw maybe gets it back down to maybe seven, something like yeah. that. <laughs> he really slashes it and makes it much more, much more efficient. Yeah. 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 I think it's to his credit. I will say, I will say that I have no doubt that I need to grow and mature as a reader of Shakespeare and... <laughs> And develop more appreciation for these long <laughs> tendential conclusions. <laughs> uh, I don't. I'm gonna like. I'm gonna bypass that. I, I feel like the the purist in me should agree with you. The realist in me is like Madeline. We all just like zip right through it. We yeah. So Tim, if you were putting if you were putting on this play, what yes. which ending would you adopt? Oh. <laughs> see i'm not asking you which one is better i'm asking you which one would you do oh that's such a hard question <laughs> because i would want to do something like what ashlyn did like i loved how ashlyn like solved that problem yeah and the problem that we're addressing that you have raised about imogen is a problem yeah and i don't think even with like really creative editing that I could make Shakespeare's Imogen like sort of like give her a voice that she deserves, especially in light of like the abuses that she's suffered. I don't think that I could like creatively edit Shakespeare's enough. So I would lean toward, I can't believe I'm saying this, George Bernard Shaw. I think I would choose George Bernard Shaw's. (laughs) Yeah. 
we've arrived in the same place. We have. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Madeline, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, I feel like it's this obligatory podcast maneuver to say it was just so fun, but it really was. It was so a fun. lot of fun. It oh. was a lot of fun. It was a huge um, privilege for me. And I feel so grateful to get to explore this play a little bit. I have to confess, I would not have read it otherwise. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> it, yeah. It's funny how preparing to teach something or podcast something will really force you to like just ingest stuff that you, that you do not necessarily find tasteful. Yeah. I will I say it. as, as a teacher, there are so many books that I have read and read multiple times and actually have come to love. And I never would have read them if not for having to prepare and be really diligent in my preparations because I've got, you know, 15 really sharp students waiting to <laughs> sharpen their teeth on me. It is a huge privilege for me to get to come and hear your expertise and your thoughts about this. So thank you so much for letting me come. It's been my pleasure. And I'm going to try to find a way in your schedule to bring you back. So just be, be prepared. Be prepared. <laughs> Um, listeners, if you want to join us, if you have questions or comments about Cymbeline or any of the plays that we have podcasted as part of the plays, the thing, you can find us on the Close Reads Facebook page. And we would love to hear your comments there. Also, we do both recommend the 2014 production of mm. Cymbeline. I think they did as well as they can do given that they were making a movie and just given some of the obstacles to making Cymbeline. And um, it's readily available on YouTube. I, there are a couple of scenes that I think for kids are probably not appropriate. Um, but if yeah. you want to kind of plunge into Cymbeline and you're willing to fast forward in a couple of places, I think that's a good place to start. I know of no other full production that was accessible Um you know, on a popular medium. I couldn't find any other one. Yeah. It's an amusing yeah. setting. You can see Cymbeline vaping and Yeah, that's right. Exactly. With a biker right. Gang. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with a biker gang. They make some really, really creative choices that I really appreciate. Hey Madeline, thanks again. And listeners, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast production of Cymbeline, of William Shakespeare's Cymbeline. Thanks so much for joining us and happy reading. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.